Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, this is Lucas Banio, and I'm excited to be here today with my co-host and colleague, Anne Duane. Today, our guests are Julio Vasconcelos and Ana Martins. Julio and Ana are both partners at Atlantico, a Latin America-focused venture capital firm. Julio is also the co-founder and partner at Canary, a seed-stage firm focused on Brazil. Julio, Ana, and their team published the famous yearly Latin America Digital Transformation Report. They just published the new report today, and we're excited to cover it in depth during this episode. And now, onto the show. Julio, Ana, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, great to be back, and thanks for having us this year. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Awesome. So we wanted to start off by you know, just asking you a little bit more about how the markets in Latin America are doing. You know, Here in the U.S., we've heard some reports that markets are down 40% relative to last year. What has changed in the, in the venture capital landscape in Latin America since then? So the, the first thing I would say is that Latin America has moved you know, fairly in lockstep with the U.S. markets and, and the global markets. So in the same way that we saw a massive boom last year and to a lesser degree the year before in 2020, uh, both of you know equity prices of publicly listed tech companies and obviously that trickling down to you know private technology companies and then that eventually uh, being seen in the amount of funding that you were seeing sort of in venture uh, that the same kind of thing was happening in Latin America right we saw in in 2021 being a record year of of financing and record year for for valuations and IPOs I think the the new bank IPO in the U.S. at the end of the year was probably kind of capped that off. Uh, and I think similarly, as the U.S. markets have uh, gone down, we've seen the same thing for Latin America. I've seen funding uh, dropping, I think deal, deal volume dropping at, at for pretty much the same same levels. So the same 40% drop that you mentioned, we've seen uh, pretty much the same drop in, in Latin America. What I, what I would say is that although the markets have moved in lockstep with the U.S., what we've seen has actually been really different is uh, consumer behavior. When it comes to you know digital usage and the general digital transformation of the entire economy, so if you you, you probably read a lot uh, about the U.S. Uh, about e-commerce and food delivery and online groceries, all of these things that had this massive boom during the pandemic, now going back to pre-pandemic levels, right? Sort of the pre-pandemic historic growth curves. Uh, And that's something that's not happened in Latin America, which is quite interesting. So you saw the same kind of boom during the pandemic of digital adoption of things like e-commerce, telemedicine, online banking. But we've seen that actually uh, 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 hold hold steady and continue to grow. So what we what we look at today, just to take e-commerce as an example, the levels of e-commerce penetration of retail today are where they would have been about two and a half years uh, from where we are today if you were to take historic trend lines. So to some extent, the, the digital transformation in Latin America has held from that pandemic boom, which I think gives us a lot of, I think, optimism in terms of the current environment. And I think how positive that'll be for both existing startups, but also companies that are being formed today. Why do you think that is, you know, in, in some ways, so I was in Brazil two months ago, and I noticed that, you know, in Brazil, 
you know, people's behaviors have not shifted that much uh, back to back to normal, uh, as I've noticed here in the US. Do you think that in some ways the growth curves have now reverted because the country is still shifting back to normalcy? Or do you think that there are specific reasons why the growth the growth rates will maintain as things return to normal? Yeah, I I can actually take this one. So we've we've talked a lot about it as we've pulled this data um, for for the report and kind of speculating why we're seeing this digitalization being more sticky in Latin America than what we've seen in other emerging and developed economies. And I think the big difference here is that what the pandemic sparked wasn't an increase in usage for a lot of these services. So it wasn't just uh, people started using e-commerce more often than they used to use e-commerce or people started ordering more food from restaurants, but they already did that before. It was it, it kind of sparked the first time for a lot of Latin Americans using these types of goods and products. So people that didn't used to have iFood, which is the kind of unicorn juggernaut of food delivery here in, in Latin America, has over kind of 80, 80% market share here in Brazil, they were downloading it for the first time. And so it's a much harder trend to reverse than an increase in usage, right? So people are saying, hey, I just discovered that I can actually get my groceries online and that's super convenient. Doesn't really make sense for me to go back to getting my groceries in person. Um, and we think we think that's one of the main reasons why it's been it's been stickier in the region. And this example of food delivery is actually a really good one. So we've actually seen a slight decline in the US from food like the the peak of online grocery shopping back in 2021 to now. It's still growing, but it's uh it's below the peak for us. Us, we're above the peak. So if you look at, at iFood, it's actually still growing kind of 12% quarter over quarter in this quarter of 2022. Um, so that's that's kind of our speculation of, of why that is. And we we truly believe that we're not going to go go back in time. We say that's kind of the genie's out of the bottle here for us in Latin America. You recently published your famous Latin America Digital Transformation Report. And a couple of things that stuck out to us were the looks like a new normal in remote work. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's interesting that, again, we we saw this shift to remote work everywhere in the world. Um, and what we wanted to to understand is what are the long lasting impacts of that in in Latin America and what we've seen. So we did we did a few kind of primary research studies um, here in the region to understand how that's that's played out. And one of the companies that we talked to is a company called Hevelu. So they actually help companies both in the U.S. and Brazil to recruit tech talent um, for early stage startups up to kind of later stage startups as well. And one shift that we've seen is that developers are no longer willing to work in person. So if we look, for example, at the job interview acceptance rate for developers um, between remote and in-person preference, about 65% um, of people accept remote offers, whereas the in-person offers are down to 21%. And that's and that's plateaued already. So this is a trend that we're seeing kind of continue throughout. And then another thing that we did is we wanted to know if people were happier um, working remotely than they were working in person. I think especially in Latin America, where if you've if you've been here, you you know that you know 
we're very social. We like going to the office. So we weren't sure if people were actually happier um, working remotely than they than they were when they were working in person. And so we partnered up with um, with Runa, which is basically a payroll software in, in, in Mexico, a startup that's doing super well. And they surveyed about 500 people in the market from like HR executives to CEOs to just employees in a bunch of companies in Latin America. And what we found is that employees are both more productive and also more satisfied with the remote model. So when we when we asked empo- employees that were 100% remote what their level of satisfaction with their work was from one to five, five being really satisfied, um, the ones that were 100% remote marked a 4.5, whereas the, one that, the ones that were less than 25% remote marked a 3.5. So they were showing higher levels of satisfaction, HR executives are saying that employees are more productive. So we we find it hard to believe that people will go back to to working fully in person here in the region. I don't know, Julie, if you have anything to add to that. I think the, the one thing I would add, because I think a lot of the founders we we speak to, whether it's on the Atlantico portfolio uh, founders or, or even other people that are just friends of ours that are running companies, is everyone's trying to find what the right model is, right? Is it hybrid? Is it fully remote? Is it fully in person? And, and there's an, an ad, added piece of data that we also collected from the market, which is that when companies gave employees the flexibility for how many days and which days they came, rather than saying Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you have to be in the office and Tuesday, Thursday, you're going to be remote, that also that level of flexibility also further increased both the level of productivity and satisfaction, like Anna said. Just curious if you have a take on how this impacts the talent pool's ability to work in local businesses versus global businesses, because we sometimes hear a lot of companies now seeking developer talent throughout North and South America because the time zones are uh, convenient. Do you have a sense of if a talent in Latin America is considering different choices of 100% uh, remote work, where they might, what they might choose? I remember talking to Julio about this when when we were first starting the report, and our hypothesis was. There's probably a bunch of engineers and good talent in Latin America There's that's fleeing to, to more global companies. And we talked to a bunch of people. We actually haven't done any studies, so I can't give you an exact data, but I can give you a little bit of our perception on the market. So that's it's it's definitely opened up some possibilities for workers here in Brazil to work for global companies that might have a better value proposition in terms of either their offering for remote work or compensation. Um, but we actually haven't seen a run of talent to outside of, of Latin America. And when we and we did do a survey with uh, people, so undergraduate students um, across a bunch of universities, both here and in, and in the US. And from what we gathered, people were still interested in, in working in tech, um, still interested in going to startups or starting a company and doing so in, in Latin America. So I think the effects of that weren't as big as we originally hypothesized, but I don't know what your perception has been. I think qualitatively, definitely what we hear is that there are engineers, especially going to work for international companies, but the the opening of the floodgates and sort of this mass exodus to international work hasn't happened. And and what we hear anecdotally is that there's still somewhat of a of a cultural barrier, right? Of how do you work in Latin America versus how do you work in the U.S. And that just takes a little bit of time and practice to sort of bridge that gap. So just to give you one example, we have. Um, 
there's a company in our in our portfolio that they they also have a software development shop called Jungle Devs that basically hires a lot of the top talent in Brazil and then uh, helps to do uh, remote software engineering work for sort of big tech companies and sort of mid-sized tech companies in the U.S. And the biggest value that they see from clients is that they can bridge this cultural gap and oftentimes even bridge the language gap. So you still need these sort of facilitator uh, type companies or people to be able to bridge that gap before I think large U.S. tech companies or even tech startups are able to fully tap the potential of Latin American talent. And related to the question about the workforce, I'm curious if you've seen either in the data or just anecdotally in your portfolio, if companies are expanding from country to country faster than they were before, you know, perhaps because, you know, they have employees across different countries in Latin America, they're more willing to to expand into those markets. Is that something that, that, that they've noticed? I think we we haven't seen companies expand solely because they have access to talent in other markets. But what we have seen is a lot of companies, especially in the fintech space, that are building infrastructure for uh, startups to expand more quickly. Um, so even when we kind of dug deep, so we one one part of the report is fully dedicated to to fintech, which I think you can't really talk about Brazil or Latin America without talking about fintech. That was kind of our first wave of innovation here, um, and that first wave was mostly kind of geared towards B two C, right? So improving products for consumers, um, giving access to banking services to those who were previously unbanked or underbanked, um, and we saw that really strong wave, like Julia mentioned, also with the new bank IPO kind of topping that off. And now we're seeing more of a shift to both B2B and also payment infrastructure. So we're seeing companies like Pomelo who are building the infrastructure for startups in the region to be able to expand geographically more easily because it's not only the language barrier, right? It's also regulations in different countries. Being able to build that from the ground up is really difficult. Customer acquisition across different countries is different. So talent is a part of that, but infrastructure is also another part of that. And I think that's where we've seen the most development in, in the past couple of years. And to that point, your uh, report highlights the growth of e-banks and PICs. Can you talk a little bit about those numbers are stunning? So just to explain to everyone out there what, what PICs is, you know, PICs is this digital and instant payment system that the Brazilian central bank created and rolled out uh, about a year ago. And, and just to put it into context, you know, I think a lot of folks talk about UPI, which is India's uh, instant payment network, which has been sort of an absolute success. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of context, even though here in Brazil, we have one sixth of India's population, it took picks only a quarter of the time that it took UPI to reach a billion uh, transactions uh, in the in the platform. What what we see today is that you know the payment volume has reached uh, about a trillion reais a month, around two hundred billion dollars a month, and not only has Pix become the biggest form of digital payment in Brazil, but it's actually become the biggest form of any payment in Brazil. It's actually tied with cash as the as the payment mechanism that people are using most frequently down here in Brazil. So. Uh, I, people, have, I've joked internally that probably you know the central bank has built the most successful payment startup in in Latin America, if not the world. Uh, and actually, they did this in a budget that was under ten million dollars. So you know, truly, sort of an amazing feat when you think about 
the, the, the ground they've broken and the type of penetration and usage they've been able to do and kind of bootstrapping this network effect in a way that's very curious because what the way that they sort of solved the cold start prob problem was actually by regulating it into everything, right? Because what the central bank did was it told all the digital wallets and digital banks that they now needed to have sort of a prominent button for people to be able to execute a transaction via PIX so that anywhere that you were doing any sort of digital banking, you would have access to being able to transfer money to, to anyone, any person or any business. And every person in business would, would be able to register for the system using either their email address, their phone number, or sort of a personal uh, identifying number so it's very you know ubiquitous uh, in that sense and you have over half of the brazilian population today already on the system yeah you know it's funny so as i mentioned at the beginning i went to brazil back uh, i went back to brazil for the first time in eight years and it was just absolutely shocking to me how pervasive uh pix was and it, it blew me away not only because how everybody was using it but also by the fact of how much better it is than the systems that we have here in the US. Like we think that Vemo or Cash App make it simple. Wow, like when you compare it to Pix, it, it, it's absolutely different. But to talk a, a, about FinTech a little bit more broadly, um, Julio, I think last year when we did the report, if I recall correctly, the number of uh, deals that were getting done in LATAM that were FinTech deals was an astonishing uh, number. It was something like 50%. What can you tell us about how fintech has evolved and changed over the last year? It's continued basically. So, so fintech is is anywhere between forty to fifty percent of either you know total investment volume or or deal volume, whichever way you cut it. When you look, you know, either across the region or specific countries, but but call it you know half half of the volume and 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 deal volume um, has been fintech or or fintech related. And I think you know obviously the the definition of fintech has become a little broader. Um, but just to give you one sense, you know, just last year, uh, you know, fintech was definitely the largest VC investment uh, category with over six billion dollars of uh, of investments of in fintech companies uh, in the region and represented forty two percent of the total investment volume in in, in Latin America. And it's, and it's been around that level, like you said, Lucas, also uh, since last year. I think the the other curious thing that we've seen here is actually what the evolution has been of these fintech investments. And Anna touched on this a, a little bit previously, that we had this first wave that was this you know B two C advent of you know neo banks and digital payments and things like that. You're now seeing kind of almost a second wave that's a lot more of a sort of B two B fintech. You're seeing you know B two B payments. You're seeing B two B credit. You're seeing a lot more sort of embedded fintech models within uh, you know different B two B marketplaces or or just uh, you know software and sort of ERP modules. Uh, so it's it's really kind of a new type of fintech that we're seeing today, and and all of this has been spurred on. By I think you know in big infrastructure investments, Anna touched on a couple of these companies that have built out the infrastructure for new fintechs to be able to grow. So that's just been able to you know fuel this virtuous cycle of innovation and the speed of innovation and the ease of innovation. But it's also been fueled by consumer adoption, right? So if you think about you know a business that's using uh, accounting software or they're using sort of an online banking for their small business, you know that that same 
user, that same human being goes home and uses a great, you know, B2C neobank for themselves. And they start questioning, why can't my business experience be as good as it is my, for my personal experience? And sort of that consumer adoption and that consumer demand for better experiences also for the enterprise have actually also been able to pull a lot of the innovation and a lot of the growth in fintech in this latest B2B wave. That might be an interesting segue to SMBs. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of SMBs that you've highlighted in your report? Yeah, so so the reason why we chose to talk a little bit more about SMBs is because we believe that that's an area in, in Latin America where startups can really enact real change. If you think of, about Latin America as a region, we have a higher proportion of SMBs compared to other regions of the world. But these SMBs contribute significantly less to the GDP of the region than do other countries. So, for example, in Latin America, SMBs and um, micro businesses contribute about 25% to the GDP, whereas in the United States, that number is 44%. And in China, that's 60%. So you have a higher number, but they're contributing much less. And why that is, um, and this is kind of our, our thesis, but also something that you, you see on your day to day is because a lot of these businesses don't have access to the basic tools that they need to grow. That covers everything from software, right? So being able to have good management of your cash flows, um, being able to have access to good productivity tools that enable you to focus on, on running your business, to, to access to financial services. So having access to credit, for example, and access to um, credit that allows you to procure from suppliers in a certain period of time so that you can control your cash flows. And that also goes for procurement. So we've, I think everyone that's invested in, in Latin America in the past couple of years has experienced the wave of B2B marketplaces across every single vertical in the region. Um, but that that's actually solving a very real problem, right? Which is SMBs don't have access to a range of suppliers. So they don't have bargaining power when they're negotiating for their goods. And so we've seen these businesses pop up in all parts of the value chain to be able to give these small businesses the tools that they need to get to the level of the United States where they actually give meaningful contribution to the economy of the country. So that's a little bit of, of, of why we touched on that. And we've been seeing so many interesting companies in the region that are doing that. We actually at Atlantic School recently announced our investment in this company called Fudo, which is a uh, vertical SaaS for restaurants is, is, is analogous to Toast in the United States, um, focusing a little bit more on the long tail of restaurants, which is giving restaurants the tools that they need to both kind of manage the day-to-day -day of their businesses and also to be more productive, communicate with their employers and, and everything else. Another company that we featured in this year's report was one of the newest unicorns in Brazil, a company called Olist. And what they do is they help uh, small merchants that want to be able to sell online. They help them take their products or product catalogs and then syndicate it out and sort of manage this across the different marketplaces. So again, it, it's a way to helping small businesses just sell more using software and using technology. And you can clearly build very large businesses as Olist has done. And I think as we've shown here on, on the report this year. In another area of the report that I know we, we talked about uh, last year that is really interesting to me is the overall digitization of LATAM, but also how people in LATAM tend to consume a lot more technology, uh, you know, much more active in social media, et cetera, et cetera. If I, if I recall correctly, I think Brazil is number two in so social media usage compared to the US, which is like 35th or something. Is there any update uh, on that end? Uh, any new findings uh, from the report over the last year that, that, that you'd like to highlight? 
So I, I think today we we are seeing that trend only continue, right? So if you compare Brazil to uh, the US and China, the time spent on the internet by Brazilians today, which I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but just it just speaks to the to the to the penetration of social media in the region. So the time that Brazilians spend on the internet per day is about ten hours. Um, in the US, that number is about seven hours. And then from those ten hours, four are spent watching um, TV online, so watching videos online. Um, so the so we've seen this trend kind of pick up even more after the pandemic. We're seeing TikTok and Quai grow in their usage every day. So kind of climbing the ranks on the most downloaded apps. And, and Quai is actually a really interesting um, case study that I don't think we brought last year. But Quai focuses on more blue color workers, um, whereas TikTok focuses more on creators. So we're seeing Quai gain some real traction in like the lower income areas of Brazil and giving creators that aren't necessarily professional creators but are creating content that is relatable to the population in Brazil the the ability to promote that content and monetize on that influence which is a big problem that we see here in the region where creators have a lot of influence but very little cash it's an interesting point that comes across in your report which is the digital and social media adoption is really high but the percent of GDP in tech companies is under-indexed versus other countries, right, which suggest opportunities. Could you say a little bit more about that? Every, every year we publish uh, what we call uh, the Atlantico Digital uh, Penetration Index, right? So we're trying to talk about really sort of how, how much technology penetration uh, is is present across the world. Uh, and the way we the way we calculate that is by taking the sort of total uh, market value of publicly listed technology companies from a given region, right? So you take all these companies that are listed and you compare that to the size of the GDP just to have a sense of sort of the the, the order of magnitude. And and if you look at a number uh, of this digital penetration index, if you look at, at at a more developed country like the United States, for example, that number is over fifty percent. If it's fifty two percent to be exact, uh, last year. When you when you look at that uh, index, that digital transformation index for a country like the United States, this year that number was over fifty percent. It was fifty two percent to to be exact. Um, and you look at other countries, other sort of fa fairly uh, uh, digital countries like China, that number is still around twenty percent uh, uh, this year. But when you compare it to to Latin America. Uh, we we are an order of magnitude below that, right? You look at the value of the of the technology companies here, and you compare it to the regional GDP. That ratio is only one and a half percent. Even if you look at Brazil, Brazil's at around three three percent. So I don't know if the one and a half percent of Latin America and three percent of Brazil are going to go all the way to fifty, like the like the United States, or they're going to go closer to the twenty percent that China represents, or even the fifteen percent that India represents, a country that is fairly uh, digitalized but has a much uh, lower level of income per capita. Uh, than than Latin America and, and then Brazil as an example, but we definitely think it's going to be a lot closer to sort of India and China. And when you think about the potential for value creation, right, as technology companies uh, spring up here and they grow and they scale, and you continue to see this digital transformation happening across the economy and society, you're talking about value creation that's you know near nearing a trillion dollars, right? Obviously, it's, you're not going to be creating a trillion dollars of value overnight, but if you look at the next ten years, next fifteen years, which is roughly the, the sort of the long-term view that we think investors should be taking when sort of making a big bet in the region, you're talking about, you know, value creation that's in the trillions of dollars, not in the millions of dollars. 
And Julio, sp- uh, talking specifically about social media, I know that you spent uh, a lot of time, correct me if I'm wrong, but setting up uh, and building Facebook in Brazil. Brazilians are one of the largest social media consumers in the whole world. We haven't seen social media companies spring up uh, in Latin. Do you have a take on why that is? You know, I think in the case of China, we see TikTok, we see those companies coming up. Uh, India, I believe, ha- has some of their own apps. Why isn't that Latam has been able to come up with their w- with their own social media apps, even though they consume it more than anybody else? I think it's a, that's a great question. And as you mentioned, Lucas, I was the first uh, Facebook employee in Brazil. I, I joined Facebook and moved down here in 2010, so over a decade ago. And just to put it into context, at that point, Facebook had roughly a million users um, down here in Brazil, a million monthly actives. Uh, and I was sent down here with the task of you know, helping uh, Facebook grow, basically ex- accelerating that, that growth. And that's and that's what and, and that's exactly what I, what I, what I did over that first year down here. We got from you know one million users to over ten million in about uh, you know six the first six or seven months that we were really focused on the region. Uh, but curiously, and maybe this is a response to your question, we were actually fighting uh, a local incumbent in the social media space, which was a social net- network called Orkut, which was actually Google's uh, social network. It was actually sort of the pet project of a of an early Google uh, engineer whose first name is is Orkut, actually. Uh, and and it was a social network that kind of sprung up and no one knows why, but really grew massively in Brazil and in India. So when Facebook had about a million users down here, Orkut had over 30 million monthly actives in Brazil. This at a time when the Brazilian internet had something like 60 or 70 million people accessing every month. So Orkut really kind of very dominant. So one could argue that even though Orkut wasn't started in Brazil. You could say it was maybe perhaps, you know, uh, the first big social network that was, you know, Brazilian, at least in DNA and soul, uh, and that sprung up here. And, and and there's an argument to be made that another Orkut could be built, you know, by Brazilians, you know, for Brazilians or maybe for the emerging markets or even for the global markets. So I think just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future. Uh, and, and we And we do think that, you, you know, we have sort of a an edge when you think about um, you know user empathy and usage uh, in terms of trying to think of what could be the next social product that works here and potentially that next social product that works here is the same one that could actually you know scale globally and be the next big social platform. Which would be great because for those of you who've never used Orkut before, um, you should you should definitely try it. I think it's up and running again. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me because something that also gets missed is that both Instagram and Facebook had Brazilians on their co-founding teams, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, in the case of Instagram, you know, Mike Krieger, who was one of the two co-founders and was a, the CTO, um, you know, also happens to be kind of an, an old time friend of mine. And, and the company I started back in 2010, a company called Pesci Urbano, that was a, a daily deal local services company down here. Actually, the very first version of Pesci Urbano, the person that built that was Mike Krieger. Uh, so just kind of com- coming around full circle in the social networking Brazilian world. That's awesome. So team, we talked about a few key areas. We talked about digitization, SMBs, remote work, fintech, and a few more. Um, I'm curious if there are any other key takeaways from the report and any areas that you think are particularly interesting that we have not covered yet. I think one uh, one additional thing that we cover this year, um, and and this was more uh, more of a learning experience for us as well, um, to to be really honest. But we 
went into the world of Web3 and crypto in Latin America. And I think the the thesis behind that and the reason why we did it is because we we believe that the social political challenges that we have here in the region make it a fertile ground for crypto companies to spring up, right? So as you know, we we have a lot of struggles with high inflation, um, high prices of financial services, such as remittances. And these are a lot of the problems that um, crypto companies are trying to solve. So we figured, hey, let's let's look at the market. Let's see how, um, how it's been developing and whether there are any interesting companies that are actually attempting to solve these problems. And I think a lot of people who, who have looked at the market in the region know about the big exchange companies that were created um, here in in Latin America, like Bitso and in Mexico and Mercado Bitcoin. Um, but what is a little bit more obscure, I would say, and then it took us a long time to kind of get to this data and to find these companies, because to be honest, they're super, super early on. Is that a lot of uh, a lot of really early stage crypto companies are springing up in the region, and that ranges across different verticals. So that goes from DeFi, so providing users with um, accounts where they can get higher yields. Um, that goes for, to wallets where users can hedge for inflation and store their money um, in stable coins, for example. And we're even seeing a movement from the central bank as they as they release um, C- CBDCs, right? So the their their own digital currencies in the region. Um, and when going back to the social media point as well, we've seen a lot of really cool NFT marketplaces uh, spring up here, um, which makes a lot of sense, right? When we go back to the to the idea of wanting to bridge this gap between creators having a lot of influence, but not being able to monetize on that influence. These are the types of platforms that allow creators to really own their art um, and, and be able to kind of finally monetize on, on, what, they're, on what they're creating. So that's one, one area that we're uh, uh, that we're interested in, been digging deeper into, but it's still very early days here in in the region. And reflecting on the report, are there any implications you can share with founders as they're thinking about fundraising these days? Like any implications on round sizes or potentially traction that might need to be true for founders to raise these days? I think that my main advice to founders, and we we repeat this um, time and time again to the Atlantico portfolio, is that we're at a moment where you have immense opportunity ahead of us, right? We talked about this digital transformation index and how much more potential there is to to grow in the region when you think about the long term. But also we we spoke about this this particular moment in time that we're seeing of this, you know, hop in, you know, two and a half, three years forward of, you know, digital usage in the region, something that's persisted here, unlike more developed markets like the US. So the, so the, so the timing is good both in the short term and the long term. But it's also a time that requires a lot of caution, right? We've seen that funding has dried up and definitely has slowed down globally. And Latin America is, is no different. Obviously, uh, you know, valuations are getting squeezed as, you know, public market comparables start to trickle down and cascade down into the later stage companies and eventually even to early early and mid-stage companies. So founders really need to be very mindful of the cash they have on hand and the runway they have ahead of them and trying to think about how can they be, you know, perhaps making decisions to be a little bit more conservative to extend runway, ensure that they're able to make it through at least the, the next 
you know, year, if not two years of turbulence and continue to be in the game, right? Continue to play. And, and one of the things that maybe we saw in the report, again, sort of some primary research we conducted that, you know, frankly left me a little uh, concerned uh, is that when we when we surveyed founders, most of them were taking uh, actions to increase runway by call it about six months. Uh, and I don't think that the time the, the the moment that we're in is one where you should be thinking about everything is going to be back to normal in six months. I think much to the contrary, I think that what we had last year is far from normal. I think that we're going to go back to probably a much steadier state uh, which has you know less funding, lower valuations, money is more expensive and more scarce. And I think that requires founders to prioritize unit economics and sort of good business metrics and good profitability metrics greater than, let's just say, growth at all costs, which is a little bit of what the market was rewarding last year. So, uh, you know, first of all, it's that mindset shift of we're not just trying to add six months of runway here, but potentially we want to add another year or two of runway. And another uh, piece of data that we also collected was that we, when we surveyed founders across the region, we saw that about a third of the companies had actually uh, reduced any of the headcount, which is, you know, by far the largest cost that uh, startups have is is around headcount. Uh, and not only that, but when you looked at the headcount reductions that that you know were executed, we saw that around eighty percent of people that reduce headcount reduce ten percent or less of their workforce, right? And sort of a you know five to ten percent you know you know reduction in workforce is not really a reduction, right? That's kind of optimization or it's kind of a a, a big performance review that you're conducting. So, you know, founders need to be more, take this more serious. I think they need to you know not just cut the fat, but they need to perhaps cut into the muscle, maybe even cut to the bone to be able to think about how do I survive through this period of time? Because if you're able to survive, then the market that we're in and the size of opportunity is so massive that it's not something you want to squander by just being overly optimistic and not not maybe exercising the caution that would be uh, that that would serve you well at a moment like this. Sound advice. And then going forward, what businesses are you most interested in funding? What are you looking for? So we we don't think we're in the business of predicting the businesses that we're going to fund, right? We we don't want to be the ones uh, defining what the future looks like. We want to kind of want to keep our doors open for founders that are the ones reinventing the future to knock on our door and kind of be able to present these sort of novel business ideas and novel models. And we want to be the the money that goes and backs them and then helps them helps them scale it. Uh, we think that there's you know plenty of opportunity when you look at these categories that we discussed, right? So you know vertical software, digitalization of SMBs. We think that those are you know, amazing markets with a lot of problems that need software and technology to be solved. We do think that sort of this new wave of fintech, be it, you know, embedded lending, embedded fintech, be it sort of more B2B applications of fintech, we think that there's, again, it's sort of ripe for dis- disruption. We think there's a lot of potential to go forward and kind of waiting for people to be able to, you know, tell us what those models are and sort of actually put that into practice and show us the traction that goes there. And I think, you know, like Anna said, um, you know, right before, we do also uh, think that there is opportunity for for web3 companies and crypto companies to solve you know real problems that we have plenty of in the region through some new technologies and through some new approaches be it you know nfts for monetizing creators is it maybe defi for reducing the the costs or increasing the efficiency in the financial system uh, or, or or anything else in that sector so we're we're open for business and waiting for founders to come and and tell us a little bit more of the future we should be backing awesome and to talk a little bit more about the funding side, do you think it's possible that, you know, as funding dries up overall, 
that all of these U.S. multi-stage investors that have been deploying heavily in, in LATAM over the over the last couple of years decide to go back to usual and you know invest only in the typical regions that they previously invested in. I'm curious if you have any data to show that if if that's already happening or if you think that could happen uh, in the next few months or years. Yeah, it's it's funny. We were just at uh, lunch with the founder before this, and and he asked us the the exact same question. Um, I think what we're seeing. So we actually did pull up some data on this, um, and what we saw is that there is definitely global investors that are pulling out of the region. Um, these tend to be from from what we've seen investors that are more that that took a more tourist approach to Latin America, right? So it was more let me see what's going on there in a time where I do have the capital to explore and to innovate, um, which is it, which is a fair strategy, by the way. Um, but I think as as capital dries up, these investors are saying, hey, let me get back to what I really know how to do, right? So we are seeing a decline in in global funding in Latin America, but that decline is being sort of made up for by local funds. Um, so what we saw is that if you look at 2021, um, the top deals closed in the region by the 20 most active investors, right? We had about 60% of those being done by foreign investors. Um, and if you fast forward to 2022 and where we are today, we're seeing local investors regain market share over the global ones. Um, so today we have about 51% of the investments done by local investors. And it's not all global funds that are pulling out. There are a lot of global funds that have made really like structural moves to be present in Latin America. They've opened offices here. They've hired teams here. They spend a lot of time researching the region and the volatility in the market. They're being hit by that in all the regions that they act, right? But there are a lot of investors that have, that truly believe in like all of the fundamentals that we've been talking to you about today. Um, so I think that decline is not as steep as we expected. Um, it, it has been happening, um, but we think there there's still funding available in the region. Awesome. So to... Get 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 near the the closing. Two areas that we have not talked about yet uh, related to macro is the the economy of these countries uh, and the political tailwinds or headwinds uh, that 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 they may be going through. Can you talk a little bit more about you know what what do you think is happening and and could happen to the economy uh, of Latin, especially Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia over the next couple of years? Yeah, so we're we're not macro specialists, but we we do like to try to try to you know read up and and know what's happening in the world. So you know, I think a lot of what you know I I can share here is not sort of original research that we've done, but but things that we've heard from people I think that are probably much more knowledgeable and smarter than us on on sort of macro themes. I, I'd start with maybe you know first the the political situation. What we've seen uh, across the entire region over the last couple of years is for a move uh, that's much more leftward, let's say, in the political spectrum in 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 every different country. And this is through elections in you know Mexico, in Colombia, uh, more recently in Chile. You know, Argentina has already been uh, much more left of center for the last couple of years. And now in Brazil, uh, in October, we're about to have our new presidential elections, and the polls seem to be pointing out, pointing to the sort of the left of center candidate, uh, sort of an, our old uh, uh, president.
potentially being uh, reelected. So you definitely do see sort of this red shift or leftward shift uh, across the region. Um, what what that's meant has been uh, a, a mix of things. I think in, in some cases it has created a little bit of uh, political instability in some countries. We you know we see this a lot in Mexico and Colombia in particular, where you know foreign investment has has paused or has has decreased as uh, foreign investors, especially you know in, in infrastructure. Uh, have have tried to have a better sense of where where the government's at, you know, in countries that have much more mature institutions like uh, Brazil, that hasn't really been a question. And I think the market has been pricing in that, you know, whether it's the current incumbent president or or sort of the more left leaning president gets elected, that it shouldn't really have any meaningful impact on the economy in the short term and shouldn't really cause any sort of political instability, neither in the short term nor nor in the long term. So the, so the markets, you know, feel that the economy is strong enough and institutions are strong enough for the for the country to continue to grow. All that said, the the global environment is such that you know we're entering into a, a global recession, right? And and Latin America is is no different than what's happening in the U.S. It's no different than what's happening in Europe. So we are seeing uh, rising inflation, right? And then as with everywhere else, you are seeing central banks rise uh, raise interest rates to try to fight some of that inflation. Uh, and you are seeing sort of mixed results of that. But, you know, it does seem like inflation is slowing down and seems to be peaking uh, in the region much as it does uh, elsewhere. So we think we're sort of at at around, you know, peak interest rates uh, uh, currently. Uh, and we think that it's going to bring inflation under control. I think that the one, you know, tailwind that potentially the region has when you compare it to other countries is that you also are seeing uh, a kind of a global boom uh, in in commodities, right? You're seeing energy prices go up. Uh, you're seeing, you know, uh, food prices go up globally. A lot of this uh, because of either, you know, supply chain uh, disruptions that are happening mostly uh, out of out of China, related a lot a lot of times to COVID lockdowns, or because of the the war in Ukraine. And you're seeing sort of all, obviously all these uh, disruption of of exports from there. And because Latin America is a net exporter of a lot of these commodities, it you know it has helped the region gain some. Uh, both in terms of having some economic growth, because now we're we're exporting those commodities that are more highly demanded and highly priced around the world, uh, but it's also helped the the local currencies, right? So when you think about it from an FX standpoint, uh, because we're exporting more, it has also helped to uh, undo a little bit of the the downward pressure you've had on on foreign exchange uh, foreign foreign exchange. Amazing, Julio, Anna, thank you so much uh, for coming to the show. And then for those that want to read the report and learn more about you, where can they go? I think the best place to go is to go to our website. It's atlantico.vc. Um, and there you can download the report. You can see videos. You can see uh, a lot of articles that were written related to this. There's a lot of interesting content there. And obviously, you can learn more about us. Uh, but thanks again for for having us, for for the great conversation. Anne and Luca, it's always, always a great pleasure to see you. Thank you so much, guys. It's great to be here and, and looking forward to the next one. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.